0: Well, thank you much, uh, Tim, and uh, thanks to all of you for, uh, for being here on a beautiful Wellington morning. Uh, having uh, so many economists gathered uh, with a shared interest in inequality is a, uh, is a true, uh, true delight. Um, can I, of course, acknowledge the Māori people, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. Um, I want to thank, in particular, Presbyterian Support Northern, uh, who has sponsored uh, my trip to, uh, to New Zealand. Uh, as part of a series of uh, lectures around child well-being. In Eleanor Caton's Booker Prize winning novel, The Luminaries, Crosby Wells is writing back to his brother in 1854, explaining why he plans never to return to England. Naturally, he starts with the weather in Dunedin. (laughs) The sun is bright on the hills and on the water, and I can bear the briskness very well. But then he turns to social class. You see, in New Zealand, every man has left his former life behind. And every man is equal in his own way. Of course, the flockmasters in Otago are barons here, just as they were barons in the Scottish Highlands. But for men like me, there's a chance to rise. It is not uncommon for men to tip their hats to one another in the streets, regardless of their station. The frontier, I think, makes brothers of us all. There's a slight irony in the fact that when I first got interested in New Zealand inequality, I was in fact in England. I was working with the late Sir Tony Atkinson, and we were working together exploring the extent to which long-run taxation statistics could help us understand whether the historical trends in inequality in Australia and New Zealand matched the myths. Was it true, as one 19th century gold digger had written Home to England, that rank and title have no charms in the Antipodes. Our series goes back to the early 1920s when taxation data is available in a sufficiently disaggregated form to allow comparison across countries. At that point, we found that the top 1,000th one of New Zealanders had incomes about 40 times the national average. In Australia, the share was similar. Britain was more unequal. There, the top one 1,000th, had incomes about 90 times the national average. And then came the Great Convergence. With only a few fluctuations, the half century from the 1920s to the 1970s saw a steady equalising of national incomes. In all three countries, the top income share fell dramatically. By the late 1970s, the top 1,000th of New Zealanders had incomes only about 10 times greater than average. The Australian figure was almost precisely the same and, and the British figure wasn't much higher. Max Rashbrook sums up some of the policies that underpinned this shift. New Zealand Labor's 1938 Social Security Act created a free healthcare system, introduced a universal family benefit and extended age pensions. More public housing was built alongside union achievements such as the eight-hour day. As political scientist Leslie Lipson puts it, when New York had its Statue of Liberty, New Zealand might well have erected a statue of equality in Wellington or Auckland Harbour. And that egalitarian era, in which wages grew faster on the factory floor than the corner office, was marked by significant social improvements. As the decades went by, ordinary families were more readily able to afford a house, a car, a fridge, a washing machine. An annual holiday away from home became the norm rather than a privilege reserved for the most affluent. That prosperity of the post-war era was broadly shared across the community. Now it's been a different story over recent decades. In the past generation the incomes of the top 1 1,000th have approximately tripled in New Zealand as they have in other English-speaking countries. Other metrics show a rise in inequality, including Brian Easton's work updating uh, the series that Tony Atkinson and I put together. There's been rapid deregulation of the economy, cuts to taxes and benefits, and a reduction in union power, all of which have acted to widen the gap. Go to Baldwin Street in Dunedin, and you can walk up the steepest street in the world. Similarly, a graph of inequality in New Zealand from the 1980s to the 1990s shows as steep a rise in inequality as we've seen anywhere in the advanced world. According to the Productivity Commission, the share of national income going to workers has dropped 8 percentage points since the late 1970s. Last year's Household Incomes Report, prepared by Brian Perry for the Ministry of Social Development, found the poorest tenth of New Zealand households had real incomes after housing costs that are lower today than they were in the 1980s. Meanwhile, real incomes for the top tenth of households are two thirds higher than in the 1980s after housing costs are taken into account. And although much of the increase in inequality took place late last century, there's little evidence that things have shifted back since then. Housing is a critical component of inequality in New Zealand today. One in 10 children live in households where there's a major problem with dampness or mould. One in 12 live in households where the family often puts up with feeling cold in order to keep costs down. And one in 25 New Zealand children don't have their own bed. At the top it's another story. Research from the University of Otago's Helen Roberts reveals over the period 1997-2013 to 2013, real CEO pay at listed firms rose 114%, about four times faster than average worker pay. That parallels trends in Australia where the average reported pay of ASX100 CEOs over the course of this millennium has risen three times faster than average worker pay. Perhaps no surprise two-thirds of New Zealanders believe the government should reduce inequality. My collaborator on New Zealand inequality, Tony Atkinson, passed away on New Year's Day last year. And his final book, Inequality, What Can Be Done, moved on from describing the trends as he'd done for much of his career to discussing solutions. And in the same spirit, my focus today will be on what we can do to reduce inequality in the Antipodes, and in particular what our two countries can learn from one another about reducing the gap between rich and poor. So let's start with what New Zealand can teach Australia. First, the quality of the data here is far higher. The first step towards breaking an addiction is admitting you've got a problem. The first step towards addressing inequality must be setting out the scope of the challenge. The annual Household Incomes Report, and its companion report using non-income measures, is as good as anything in the world when it comes to analysing inequality. That's to the credit of Brian Perry, but also the willingness to invest in surveys that measure the multiple dimensions of poverty. Whether children have a waterproof coat, whether they can afford to eat fresh fruit and vegetables, whether they can afford to play sport. New Zealand has a long and distinguished history of investing in studies that track individuals over time, such as the 1972 Dunedin Longitudinal Study, For the 1977 Christchurch Health and Development Study. More recently, Statistics New Zealand's integrated data infrastructure has linked up individuals' de-identified data uh, with numbers from a range of government and non-government sources. As Carmel Cappellani's incoming ministerial brief noted, this has provided insights about the relationship between social housing and incarceration, mental health and earnings, maternal services and childhood risks, These aren't necessarily causal, but they do point to areas that policy makers should explore. By contrast, Australian policy makers have been much slower (coughs) to join up our databases. Even at the same tier of government, there's often a reluctance to share data to build up a better picture of disadvantage. The example of your integrated data infrastructure shows us what we might be missing out on as a result. And second, I'm impressed by the government's focus on child child poverty. Not only is Prime Minister Ardern also the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, but her government's proposed a child poverty reduction bill that will require the budget to report progress on reducing child poverty, uh, much as uh, uh, you've done for uh, net debt uh, under the uh, 1994 Fiscal Responsibility Act, uh, now the Public Finance Act. Again, as in the case of net debt, there's not a penalty for failing to meet the benchmarks. Uh, But as we've found in Australia with our closing the gap exercise, targets do focus the mind of government and the general public on tackling the problem. And indeed, it's not as though the child poverty rate is noticeably different in our two countries. According to the OECD, the child poverty rate measured as the share of children living in households with uh, incomes Less than half of the median uh, is 13% in Australia, 14% in New Zealand. And third, I'm deeply impressed by how much further New Zealand has travelled in your nation's recognition of its original inhabitants. Uh, Last December, my wife and I travelled around New Zealand with our three sons. And of course, we loved it. But one of the most moving experiences for us was to take the children to Te Papa and to show them the exhibition of the Treaty of Waitangi. And naturally it prompted the question from them, why didn't Australia have a treaty like this? And it's not for want of trying. Uh, Last June, over 250 Indigenous leaders met in Central Australia, with the result being the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which called for a First Nations voice in the Australian Constitution and a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of both agreement-making and truth-telling. In October it was utterly rejected by the Australian Government. As my colleague Senator Patrick Dodson put it, it was a real kick in the guts for the Referendum Council. There's a lot that Australia can learn from New Zealand's success in formalising the roles of Audi people in the nation. From the All Blacks haka to the dual naming of places and organisations, there's a naturalness to the way in which New Zealand honours and celebrates its First Peoples. And now allow me to step onto thin ice as I attempt to play the role of a foreigner trying to tell you what to do. Uh, If I offend, uh, my only excuse is it is what uh, uh, Denise Cosgrove and uh, PSN brought me here to do. So what might an egalitarian New Zealander learn from Australia? Number one, you might be able to do more to target social expenditures towards the poorest. Peter Whiteford, a professor at the Australian National University who was formerly at the OECD, has calculated the ratio of cash transfers paid to the poorest fifth compared to the richest fifth in a population. There's some countries, among them Austria and France, that actually give more money to the richest fifth of the population than they do to the poorest fifth. In the typical advanced nation, the amounts are about the same. Put another way, cash transfers are neither regressive nor progressive. New Zealand is mildly progressive, giving about one and a half times more in cash tra- government cash transfers to the poorest fifth as to the richest fifth. In Australia, the ratio is 11. 11 times more in cash transfers to the poorest fifth than to the richest fifth. Now, Peter's analysis is based on OECD data, so there's an inevitable lag. It's possible those precise numbers are slightly out of date, but it's very unlikely that cash transfers are more progressive in New Zealand than Australia. And that suggests there may be things that New Zealand can learn from Australia about how to better target government resources towards the neediest, using income tests and potentially even assets tests. Secondly, it might be worth New Zealand considering whether the balance of power in the workplace has shifted too far towards employers. That's particularly true when employers have significant market power. In last year's economic survey of New Zealand, the OECD observed that what they called politely muted competition may be holding the economy back. But as an increasing strand of research is recognising uncompetitive markets aren't just bad for consumers they can also be bad for employees. Because they can create a situation in which firms exercise monopsony (coughs) hiring power in the labour market, effectively able to pay workers less than their marginal product. One area in which the pendulum may have swung too far is employment (coughs) protection. The OECD estimates uh, for its 34 member countries a measure which it calls protection of permanent workers against individual and collective dismissals. New Zealand is the country in the OECD that provides the least protection against dismissal. Ranking is even easier for an employer to dismiss an employee uh, than the United States, which has in parts of the country uh, at-will employment. Now Australia isn't that much further up the list. We're the sixth easiest OECD country for an employer to dismiss a worker. But there is a significant difference between our two countries on that dimension. And given as I mentioned before that the labour share of national income is significantly lower now than it was a generation ago, it providing better dismissal protection may potentially strengthen the ability of workers to collectively bargain for higher pay and better working conditions. And third is to recognise the role that foreign investment plays in sustaining employment. As you know, the Antipodes enjoyed among the highest wages in the world at the end of the 19th century. And one reason for this was the high amount of land per person. Europeans lived cheek by jowl, but there was plenty of room to swing a sheep in Australia and New Zealand. In economic terms, one reason that wages were high is that the capital to labor ratio was high. Today both Australia and New Zealand have strong immigration programs. Migrants can start, fill skill gaps, start businesses, uh, boost innovation, encourage exports. Migrants are more likely to patent, more likely to win a Nobel Prize. But migrants also have the inevitable effect of lowering the capital labour ratio. To the extent that migrants are adding to the number of workers available to do a given job, this may put downward pressure on wages. And it was the former Australian Treasury Secretary, Ken Henry, who pointed out to me that foreign investment has the opposite effect. It increases the available capital, so it pushes up the capital-labor ratio. So as Ken points out, by accepting foreign investment as well as migrants, a country can keep its capital-labor ratio constant and therefore its wages. Now there's a bunch of vexed issues surrounding foreign investments. I'm a politician, I'm not naive to these things. National security screening, public attitudes, uh, the potential underpayment of tax by foreign investors. But as the OECD noted last year, New Zealand's inward direct investment stocks are substantially lower than in a number of other small, high-income OECD countries. And they recommend steadily removing screening requirements on sectors such as construction and retail trade demonstrating tangible benefits of foreign investment to the general public. They also advocate a public register of foreign direct investments to provide better transparency, (coughs) basically allowing the public to see who owns what. What the OECD fails to mention is that such uh, an approach, if managed carefully, could conceivably also reduce inequality. And finally there's shared challenges that neither nation has dealt with particularly well. About a third of the rise in inequality on my estimates have to do with declining union membership. Since 1980 the union membership rate has dropped from 69% to 18% in New Zealand. It's dropped from 50% to 16% in Australia. So while When I was a primary school kid, it used to be the case that most workers were in a union. Now it's only the case that about one in six workers are in a union. Antipodean unionisation rates are still higher than the American rate of 11%. It'll only be a decade or two on current trends before we're at the US unionisation levels. That will continue to place upward pressure on inequality. In both our nations too, Crime rates for most offences are falling, but the incarceration rate is rising. As we speak, about one in 500 adults (coughs) in both our countries are behind bars. That has a disproportionate effect on indigenous Australians and Maori, since both groups are overrepresented in jails. Incarceration limits future labour market opportunities. Employers are not particularly keen and hiring people who've come out of jail. That's particularly true in an increasing service economy, where many jobs have direct customer interactions. Incarceration impacts on children. More men in jails, fewer dads in the home. And fiscally, rising incarceration imposes a huge cost on the budget. A night in a jail cell costs about as much as a night in a five-star hotel. And justice experts are increasingly realising that while a 20-year sentence costs twice as much as a 10-year sentence, it's very unlikely it has twice the deterrent effect. Peter Gluckman, the New Zealand Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, recently noted that the past half century saw criminal justice costs grow twice as fast as any other category of government spending. Both Australia and New Zealand have a lot more work to do in identifying policies that can reduce both crime and incarceration which means better understanding the relationship between the formal and the informal labour market, basing crime policies on evidence rather than emotion, and improving the quality of rehabilitation programs, particularly just before prisoners left jail. Australia and New Zealand also share the dubious distinction of slipping backwards in international tests of science and reading and mathematics. Over the 15-year history of the OECD's PISA exam, New Zealand's average score for maths dropped 42 points, more than any other country. Not far behind was Australia, with a 39 point drop. In Australia's case, this continues a much longer trend. Uh, work that I've done with Melbourne University's Chris Ryan suggests that since the 1960s, the literacy and numeracy of young teenagers has either flatlined or worsened. John Hattie, who's worked in both our countries, says that education policymakers policy makers have quote, sat back on our laurels. Many experts point to the importance of teacher quality in reversing these trends, yet neither country seems to be doing enough to ensure the teaching profession attracts and retains the very best. In a speech in Wellington a few years ago, Labor leader Bill Shorten noted the commonality in how Australia and New Zealand approach the world. At our best, he observed, we've shown a neighbourliness and a courage and a lack of prejudice and a love of the outdoors and a life of the mind that's drawn to our region, not just tourists attracted by the natural wonders, but all those who admire our civilisation, our society. At its best, a society working without panic, without snobbery, without cultural warfare, in a spirit of affable consensus and decent communal care. We believe in the fair go and the chance for all. When I ask my economist friends why they believe in reducing inequality, they'll point naturally to the economic theory of the diminishing marginal utility of income. The notion that a dollar buys less happiness for a billionaire than for a bad one. Or they might point to the strong relationship between inequality and immobility with all that wasted potential that it entails. In the words of one recent study, there's more lost Einsteins in unequal countries. But as my New Zealand inequality collaborator, Tony Atkinson, recognised, the appeal of egalitarianism goes beyond the hip pocket. To most citizens, equality means something deeper. More equal society is one in which we recognise our common obligation to help one another, to lift someone up when they're down in their life. It's why our soldiers created their own welfare states in the World War II prisoner of war camps. It's how we built social institutions in the first half of the 20th century that were the envy of the world. We might call it generosity, altruism or mateship, but I don't think it's anywhere better summed up than with the Maori word, roha. As Cleve Barlow puts it, A person who has roha for another, expresses genuine concern towards them and acts with their welfare in mind, no matter what their state of health or wealth. Roha is a fundamentally egalitarian idea. And just as society is far more than a collection of individuals, a good life involves far more than the accumulation of wealth for one's own enjoyment. A life lived together is a better life. A nation that shares its prosperity is richer in every sense. Thank you very much.